Heavenly Father, we are open to what your word has to say. And we ask that your word would read us, that we would be open to transformation, and we would be open to hearing your Holy Spirit interpret for us and to give us insight and wisdom and what you say. Help us not just to be hearers of your word, but to do what your word says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. We are going to be beginning a five-week series in the book of Jonah. And we're going to learn what this story, what this narrative is communicating about the character and the nature of God, who he is and who we are. We're supposed to look at this story as a giant mirror and see the person of Jonah, see ourselves in the story, see ourselves in the person of Jonah. And before we begin reading... Uh, I want to first let you know about a free online resource uh, that's available to you. If you have any desire to know more about the Word of God, maybe you are hungry for the Word of God, you want to go deeper, but you can't read Hebrew and you can't read Greek, I have some good news for you. There is a free online resource. Um, it's a seminary-level class. There's there's actually a few seminary-level classes available. There's one on the book of Jonah, and it's at bibleproject.com. So if you go home, you can sign up with your email address. It's free, but they are, uh, I think there's almost 30 sessions of seminary level classes in the book of Jonah alone. And so if you are hungry to know more about all the little intricacies about this story, you can go to bibleproject.com and sign up for a seminary level class. I have been, uh, I have been involved in this as well. I've been, I've been taking these classes as I've been studying for this book. And it is mind-blowing how much there is in this story that we're not going to have time to cover in five weeks. So I'd encourage you to, to sign up for that, uh, that course if you're hungry for more. There's lots of misunderstandings regarding uh, about the book of Jonah. And the story of the guy who was swallowed by a big fish, it's pretty well known in our world today. But few people stop to consider what this narrative is communicating. I've seen some pretty big fish uh, in my short in my few short years i'm only 33 are there any fishermen in in the in the place anybody i know that we have a few people in here who go to alaska and they they fish for some big fish but i remember um when my family moved to uh corbett oregon it was right along the columbia river and at the house that we were staying at there was a, a pond and the previous owners at one point told us that they had stocked the pond with sturgeon and if you've ever seen a sturgeon before, they are like di- they look like dinosaurs. They're scary. They're big. Uh, sturgeon can get really big. In fact, Atlantic sturgeon can get up to 16 feet long and weigh up to 800 pounds. They they're these massive fish, and you can fish for them. That you find them in the Columbia River. There's 12, 13, 14 feet sturgeon in the Columbia River. And so somebody had told us they had stocked the pond. They'd put a few sturgeon in our pond, but we had never seen them. Uh, in, in, the, in the few years that I was there. And one, we would go swimming in this pond. We'd go fishing in this pond. And one day I was out there swimming by myself. And, and I, I, uh, I get back on the dock. And I'm just kind of leaning uh, on the dock. I'm, I'm looking at the water. And I'm just sunbathing. And I look at the water. And I see suddenly, no joke, a four-foot sturgeon in our tiny pond surface. They're bottom feeders, so they stay on the bottom most of the time. But this four-foot sturgeon, I see his big, ugly, prehistoric spine just surface on the water and then slither back down into the water. And I thought, that's it. I'm never swimming in this pond ever again. <laughs> it's a big fish. But, you know, 
the story of Jonah is, is more than a story of a man surviving being swallowed by a fish. And by the way, people say, well, was it a fish or was it a whale? Because we all know the story of Jonah and the whale. But the, I'm going to tell you now that the Hebrew word that we see in the story is the Hebrew word for fish. It is a giant fish. And uh, as we consider all these different things that we're going to talk about, I want to keep in mind uh, that we have to honor the time period in which this book was written. We have to honor what the authors, what the original authors would have experienced and what they would have seen. And I never thought about this before, but as I'm taking these uh, these classes at BibleProject.com, I thought about this before, that this is all before the days of underwater cameras and uh, National Geographic documentaries about the deep sea. And so today we know what a humpback whale looks like. We know what a blue whale looks like. But imagine being an ancient Israelite and being one of the few people that are, are out on the deep sea and you see the back of a humpback whale just surface and go back under. If you don't know what the rest of that thing looks like, what are you going to be thinking about what is under the ocean? And you would see things that wash up on the shore, maybe little fish, and you just assume, oh, well, there, there has to be one of these little things. There has to be a bigger version of this little fish out there somewhere because you had no idea what was out there. And so the, the, the original authors would have used whatever words they had to describe what it is that happened. And so we have to honor all of these different settings. We have to honor the timeline in which this was written. Jonah, there's a lot of misunderstandings in this book. Uh, a lot of people think that Jonah is just a cute children's story. Does anybody remember the felt board Sunday story, the, the Sunday school felt board stories when you were a kid? Uh, as, as kids, we learn about the cute little prophet who got on a boat and ran away from God and was swallowed by a fish and spat back out. But they are teachers, and this is probably age appropriate. They don't teach us about the suicidal prophet who would rather die than carry out God's plans. And it's probably, there's probably a reason for that. But, but it's not just a cute children's story. Jonah is not just a fictitious tale or a myth. It is a historical event. This story actually happened. Well, many people would argue, Pastor, there's not a fish alive that's big enough to swallow a person. And even if there was, nobody could survive for three days inside of its belly. Well, I believe, I think there's two reasons that, that I believe that this story is fact, not fiction. I believe in a God who raised Jesus from the dead, and he parted the Red Sea. And if God can do those types of things, surely God could use a giant fish to rescue Jonah from drowning in a storm. Another reason I believe this story is fact and not fiction is because in Matthew 12, Jesus himself refers to Jonah spending three days and nights in the belly of a huge fish. And we're going to read this passage in just a minute. Another thing that happens when people read this story, when, when we ask people about, can you tell me about the story of Jonah? They, they talk about uh, the story of Jonah, but they miss the climax of the story. They stop reading before the climax of the story. The climax is not Jonah being spat back out and going to Nineveh. The climax of the story is actually at the very end of the book in chapter 4, where God spares the city of Nineveh. And in that story, in the entirety of the book of Jonah, is where we find the crux of the message that we were supposed to learn about this book. And so as we study this book over the next month, we're going to keep in mind the big picture. Jonah is a really unique book in the Bible. It is included in a group of writings known as the Minor Prophets, 
But unlike other prophetic books, unlike other prophets' books, it does not focus on the prophetic words of the prophet. It focuses on the life of the prophet himself. Oftentimes, prophets are, are remembered for what they prophesied, for what they spoke. And we can quote Isaiah. We can quote Jeremiah. For I know the plans the Lord has for you, declares the Lord. And we know about what the prophet said, but in the case of Jonah, we don't focus on what Jonah prophesied. We focus on his life and the person of the prophet himself. Despite being God's prophet, Jonah is an anti-hero. He is the example of what not to do. And we, we root for other prophets like Samuel, who as a child learns to hear from the voice of the Lord. He hears the Lord call his name when he's a child, and he learns to hear the voice of the Lord. We root for guys like Samuel. We root for prophets like Elijah, who who have this, uh, who face off against the pagan prophets of Baal on the mount on Mount Carmel. But Jonah is a prophet that makes us cringe. He's a prophet that we go, man, dude, you just cannot get this right, can you? He does the opposite of what Jesus would do, and he opposes the will of God. He is the example of what not to do, and that's the point. We're supposed to look at this book as a mirror and see ourselves in the person of Jonah. Because we can be real judgmental thousands of years later, right? But we see ourselves in the person of Jonah. Here's what Jesus says about Jonah. This is the parallel that he makes between himself and and Jonah, and it's significant. Matthew 12, verse 39, Jesus says this. Uh, by the way, the Pharisees are asking Jesus for signs and wonders. They're saying, if you are who you say you are, then show us signs and wonders. And Jesus responds by saying, a wicked and adulterous generation ask for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. See, there's this parallel between Jonah and Jesus. Jonah is an unwilling prophet whose three-day passage through the sea led to Nineveh's salvation. And Jesus is a willing participant whose three-day passage through the grave led to the salvation of the world. Jonah begrudgingly delivered God's message of mercy with hate in his heart. And Jesus compassionately delivered God's message of mercy with love in his heart. See, all throughout scripture, Jesus is proving himself over and over to be a better version of prophets and of men that went before him. Jesus compares himself. My boy is fussing in the, in the, in the second row. He's good. He's, he's, I think he needs a nap. But Jesus proves himself over and over to be so much better than many characters in the Bible. And he reverses what these characters were supposed to look like. Jesus is compared to the second Adam. Where Adam fell, Jesus succeeded. He is compared to the second Moses. He is the second Joshua who not just leads people into the promised land, but leads people into a new covenant, a covenant of grace and a, and a relationship with God where we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's the second David. David was a mighty king, but now Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And now we see a picture of him as the second Jonah who brings a message of repentance and salvation to a whole world who doesn't deserve it, but still extends his mercy and his grace regardless. So, are you ready to dive into Jonah? 
We're not going to get very far today. It's a short book. If you look in your Bible, it's only about a page and a half. It's a very short four-chapter book, but we're only going to get three verses into this story today. And there's a reason for that because what I want us to do as we begin this journey is I want us to try to capture, I want us to try to have the eyes of the original readers. And there's a few things that we have to understand as we read the story of Jonah. And we're going to talk about those in a minute. But let's first read this uh, Jonah 1, 1 through 3. It says, now, some of your translations might say, and, and that's important. Because the word and at the very beginning of this story means that it's supposed to be stitched in with the rest of the narrative of of Scripture. This book does not stand alone, but it is woven in with the rest of Scripture. It is part of a larger story. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Away from what? The presence of the Lord. The Hebrew translation there says the face of Yahweh. He fled from the face of Yahweh. So there's a few things that we have to catch. The Bible is unique in the sense that... uh, as, as, a, as a Jewish reader, as a Hebrew reader, when, when you read the Bible, you automatically assume a few things. Anybody know what a hyperlink is? When you're online and you see a, a word that's lit up in blue and you can click on that word, it'll take you to a new page. Or some of you have study Bibles and if you look at the, cliff, if you look at the footnotes in your study Bible, if you see uh, Jesus quote a passage from Isaiah, there'll be a little letter at the top of that and you could look down and it hyperlinks it to Isaiah's first quote. It'll hyperlink it to where that is said in the Old Testament. This is how the Hebrew Bible works. That when you read the Bible, you are supposed to hear specific words and specific phrases and automatically think of where else in Scripture that is found because those hyperlinks clue you into the greater story that is happening here. So I want to clue us in to a few of the hyperlinks that are happening here, a few of the words that are coming up that we're supposed to take notice of. The first question that we can ask ourselves when we read this story is, who is Jonah? Who is this guy? Is this the first mention of Jonah that we see in the Bible? The answer is no, it's not the first mention of Jonah. But Jonah was a prophet of the Lord that ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II between 786 and 746 B.C. And his name, the name Jonah, means dove. It means dove. And in the New Testament, the dove becomes a symbol for the Holy Spirit, but in a more general sense. In the Old Testament, it depicts a dove as a symbol of peace and hope. You might have in your mind Noah's Ark. When they're on the water for 40 days and 40 nights and they're waiting for a sign of hope that the waters are subsiding, what is it that brings an olive branch to Noah to let him know that the waters are subsiding? It's a dove. The dove is a symbol of peace and hope, and Jonah's name means dove. The only other place where Jonah is mentioned in Scripture is in 2 Kings chapter 14, 
verse 25. We're going to read it in a minute. I'm actually going to read verses 23 through 25. But let me, this is significant to know who Jonah was, to know his history in order to know the significance of the story. It says this in 2 Kings 14. In the 15th year, I'm going to butcher these names. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Listen to this. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one, this is speaking about Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. See, this reference back to Jonah's past is very significant in what we're going to read in the coming weeks. Did you catch what kind of person King Jeroboam was? Jonah served under King Jeroboam, and the Bible says that this king was evil. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we hear in 2 Kings 14 that Jonah was the one who prophesied to this evil king that he would take land... He would be victorious in battle, and he would restore the boundaries of Israel. So, Jonah brings good news to an evil king who does not deserve it. Does this sound familiar in the story of Jonah? And another significant thing is the land that Jonah prophesied to be restored with, uh, the land that Jonah prophesied that was going to be restored uh, it was the same land that Israel possessed uh, during the time of Solomon's reign. And it resembles the land promised to Abraham, the promised land. And going back further, uh, this land was encompassed by the rivers of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. So what Jonah is prophesying to this king is an Eden-like blessing. That God is going to give you this promised land back. He's going to restore the boundaries of Israel. This is very good news for an evil king to receive. And Jonah prophesies this good news. But here's the thing. In the very next chapter of 2 Kings, he prophesies good news to an evil king in 2 Kings 14. And when you read 2 Kings 15, you understand that the land that Jonah prophesies to Jeroboam is taken away. In accordance with a prophecy that Amos had given. Amos prophesied that the land would be taken away. And so, the Assyrians come in in the very next chapter and they take away the land that Jonah prophesied to King Jeroboam. And guess what the capital city of Assyria is? Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrians who come in and take away this land that Jonah prophesied to Jeroboam would be Israel's. So the, in the only other place that Jonah is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's when he makes a prophecy about a land that is eventually taken away by the hands of the Ninevites. Let's talk about Nineveh. Jonah, the, the reader would know, they would, they would know, they would associate, there was, there's a word in here or a phrase in here that would give them a clue as to what Nineveh is and what the writer is talking about. Jonah 1.1 refers to Nineveh as that great city. There's a phrase, that great city. And this phrase appears in Jonah four times. But the only other place that this phrase appears is in Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis 10, it gives us a genealogy. It's our favorite part of the Bible, right? Gene genealogies. It's the part that we usually skip over. 
But in Genesis 10, it gives us a genealogy of Noah's family. I'm going to put it up here on the screen in just a minute. This is a genealogy of, of Noah's family. It says that Noah had a son named Ham. What a great name. Ham had a son named Cush, another great name. And Cush names his son Nimrod. Nimrod, you little Nimrod, get over here. Noah, Ham, Cush, Nimrod. And Nimrod is the great, great grandson of Noah. And he is a mighty warrior and hunter who goes on to build evil cities. This is what Genesis 10 10 through 12 says, I'm going to start at verse 8, actually. It says, Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the first centers of his kingdom. This is what Nimrod goes and builds. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kelne in Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh. Uh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, which is that great city or the great city. And so by using the phrase that great city, the author of Jonah is intentionally associating Nineveh with Babylon. And if you have been reading your Bible for any amount of time, you understand when you read the Old Testament that Babylon is the epitome of an evil city. It is the epitome of corruption. By the way, Babel and Babylon are the same place when you read scripture. And when you read about Babel or Babylon, you understand that this is one. This is the epitome of evil and corruption. So the author is intentionally uniting Nineveh and Babylon together to communicate this city is pure evil. It is corrupt. It is terrible. It is opposed to the will of God. And it was established upon the blood of innocent people. Another thing that we have to catch before we continue, before we continue is in verse 2, where it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. There's a pattern in the Bible of evil rising up to the ears of the Lord and him hearing the cries of the innocent and hearing uh, the evil things, being made aware of the evil that people are doing. And this phrase connects the story of Jonah with a very important biblical design pattern. In It's the design pattern of evil human cities whose violence forms an outcry that rises up to God. Can you think of any other instance of this? of evil cities creating corruption and that outcry rises up to the Lord. It's all throughout scripture. Probably the, the one that's coming to your mind the most is Exodus chapter 2 in the, in the burning bush. God calls to Moses and he says, I want you to go to Egypt and talk to Pharaoh because the cry of my people has come up before me. I'm hearing the cries of my people. But we first see this phrase, it's a motif in scripture, it's a pattern in scripture that we're supposed to link ourselves to when we read the book of Jonah. The first time we see this phrase is in Genesis chapter 4 in the story of Cain and Abel, where uh, Abel offers a good sacrifice of a lamb to the Lord and the Lord accepts it and Cain offers produce to the Lord and it is not acceptable to the Lord. And so Cain becomes jealous, he kills his brother Abel and Genesis 4.13, God says, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. 
It's rising up to me. I'm being made aware of what is happening here. It's mentioned again in Genesis chapter 6 when God is looking at the earth before the flood. He sees that everything in a man's heart is evil. Every thought they have is evil. And he says, then the Lord said, excuse me, then it says, the end of all flesh has come up before me. It's a death sentence. God is saying, everything is evil all the time and it is coming up. It is rising up to me. Genesis chapter 18, we see it again in Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down to see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And again, in Exodus chapter 2, where it says in verse 23, and they cried out and their outcry rose up to God from their slavery. See, in each of these stories, in each of these stories, there is an evil city. There is, there is, there is a setting where people are giving an Eden-like promise or an Eden-like opportunity to receive a blessing from, the, from God. And they ruin it. And they go and take for themselves what they think is right. And they build evil cities that are opposed to God. And eventually the, the outcry is so great it becomes it, it comes up to God. He, he becomes aware of what is happening. Not like he wasn't aware before. But, but the outcry becomes so great that God does something about it. He raises up a deliverer or an intercessor who either confronts evildoers and calls them to repent. Like Moses did in Egypt, he confronts Pharaoh, he calls him, let my people go. Or he raises up an intercessor who pleads with God on behalf of the wicked. Like Abraham did before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham said, God, do not destroy the city. Would you destroy the city if there's 50 righteous people? And God says, no, I won't destroy the city. Would you destroy the city if there was 45, 40, 35, 30? And he talks God all the way down to 10. If there are 10 righteous people in the city, would you destroy it? God says, no. I won't destroy the city. God raises up intercessors and deliverers. And in the story of Jonah, the same pattern is happening here. Evil has risen up to the Lord, and he is calling a deliverer. He's calling an intercessor, and he says, Jonah, you're my man. But instead of doing what all those other people did, Jonah does the opposite. He runs away. He is a stubborn prophet, a runaway prophet who decides that he's going to go to Tarshish instead of listening to the voice of the Lord. What is the significance of Tarshish? Why this location? Why, did not, why didn't he run to any other location? But why did he decide to go to Tarshish? Well, apart from it being in the opposite direction of Nineveh, Tarshish was an exotic nation filled with gold and precious gems. We can read about this place in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 22. This is the New American Standard Version. It says, For the king had, had the ships of Tarshish at sea with Hiram's ship. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish would come carrying gold and silver, ivory, monkeys, and peacocks. That's kind of a fun ship to be a part of. It would come delivering all these goodies, all these delightful things. The ships of Tarshish, they are, they are a symbol of wealth and idolatry and pagan influence in Israel. And therefore, they are a target for God's justice. We see that God speaks out against Tarshish specifically in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. It says, For the Lord of armies will have a day of reckoning against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the delightful ships. You see, Tarshish 
is significant because it is a place that represents all the comforts of life, all the things that you really want, that your flesh desires, that you crave. And instead of obeying God, Jonah seeks out his own pleasure and his own fulfillment in a way that is completely opposed to God. So why did Jonah run? The crux of Jonah's fight can be understood by answering the question, why did he run from God? And there are maybe a few different reasons that people might suggest, but chapter 4 actually tells us the reason that he ran away, that he did not want to go to Nineveh. But many people might say, well, I think Jonah was probably concerned about the difficulties that he would face. I mean, traveling to Nineveh would be a long journey, and the city was described as being so immense, it would take a long time to preach God's message to that whole city. But the Bible doesn't mention Jonah's difficulties. He doesn't say anything about that. Some people might say uh, it was probably because of the dangers that he he was afraid of going to Nineveh. It was the dangers that he would face. I mean, Nineveh was so corrupt and evil and violent. And Jonah would be a Jew in Assyria delivering a very unpopular message to evil people. But the Bible doesn't mention the difficulties or the dangers. And when we read Jonah chapter 4, we understand why Jonah ran from God. It was because he did not want his enemies to experience the mercy of God. And we're going to get to this in chapter 4. There's this amazing, fascinating conversation that Jonah has with God. When the city of Nineveh is spared, Jonah gets upset that God spared the city. And he said, God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew this is why I didn't want to go. He says this in chapter 4. This is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I knew that you were merciful and compassionate, that you're slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew that you were going to do this, and I didn't want you to. So he says, just kill me now, God. I don't, if my enemies are going to experience your mercy, then just kill me now. I'd rather die. It's an incredible, insane story that we're going to get to in a couple weeks. But we understand that Jonah ran because he could not cope with a God who loves his enemies. Do you know that God loves your enemies? Come on, make it personal this morning. Don't look around the room. I'm not talking about in the room. I want you to think about this for a minute. Who are the people in your life that you can't believe God extends mercy to them? Every one of us has a group of people that are like this. We think about, we think in our heads, I can't believe that God extends mercy because I simply have no patience for these, these kinds of people or this group of people or fill in the blank. Who are your enemies? Who, who have you made an enemy in your life? The crux of the story of Jonah rests in the idea that God is in love even with your enemies, that they are his creation as well, that he's crazy about them. He loves them. He's just, and he punishes the wicked, but he still loves his creation. He loves the ones he made. God's mercy is one of the central themes in the book of Jonah. And we're supposed to read Jonah like a mirror and see ourselves in this disobedient prophet. So when you run from God, Jonah is a prophet of the Lord who is undoubtedly well-versed in Scripture. He went in the opposite direction that God told him to go. And he seemed to have completely ignored 
what is written in Psalm 139. The Psalms were available to Jonah. He would have understood, he would have known these scriptures. Psalms 139, verse 7 through 10 says this, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Wouldn't it be ironic if the name of the ship that took him to Tarshish was Wings of the Dawn? Even if I board the Wings of the Dawn, still your presence will be there with me. There's a few things I want to bring attention to about this runaway prophet. Notice that when we read Jonah, the first three verses of chapter 1, that Jonah is not only running from God's calling, what God's called him to do, but the text says that he's running from God's presence. He's running from the face of Yahweh. For the rest of our time, I want us to take a moment to peer into the mirror of Jonah and see ourselves in this disobedient prophet. We run from God's presence when we don't want to face something within ourselves. Maybe you're stuck in shame because of sin or addiction, and it keeps you captive. And maybe you've been avoiding a real conversation with God because you're afraid of what will happen to your life. I know that if I bring this to God, he's going to ask me to change, and I'm not ready to change. I'm not ready to give this up. I'm not ready to forgive. I'm not ready to take care of this. I'm not ready to confess my sins. I'd rather just keep it hidden, keep it buried, and so I'm going to run from the face of Yahweh. We run from God in our own lives. We run from God's presence because God doesn't offer some things that you really desire. Tarshish looks better. I oftentimes have a, I, I trust that God is going to provide the things that I need, but I don't always trust that God's going give, to give me the things that I want. So I take those myself. I board the ship to Tarshish because I don't know if God wants to give me that. It doesn't matter. I'm going to give it to myself. I'm just going to go. Have you ever done this in life? We run from God when we want the things that we want, even though God is saying, that's not for you. Be patient. My, my things that I have for you are better. Ask yourself this morning, have I been running from God's presence in any sense? These are three things that you can expect if you run from God's presence. This is what the text says. God's way is always up, and yours, your way is always down. Running from God always leads down. The text in Jonah says that he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. See, in the Bible, God's way is always depicted as up. He's depicted as being up. And Sheol, or hell, or man's way in the Bible is always depicted as being down or under the earth. And we choose to go down. We choose when we get to that fork in the road and we can choose choose to go God's way or choose to go our way. We choose to go down for the same reason Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. We think we know better than God. We think we know what is good for us. Or we think that God doesn't want us to have good things. He doesn't want me to be happy. He wants me to just buckle down and suffer and serve him. He doesn't want good things to happen to me. Can I tell you, church, this is not a prosperity gospel, but God wants good things for your life. He doesn't always want you to be comfortable. 
He doesn't say in his word that it's always going to be easy, but he wants your good. He is for you, not against you. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Did you know that God loves you more than you love yourself? He loves you more than anyone else could ever love you. And he desires to do good things in your life. Like I said before, does good always mean easy or comfortable? No. God's way will always lead you up towards a better life. God's way is up. When you run from God, number two, you never arrive at your destination. You never get to where you want to go. We make plans and we try it. We think this is where I'm going to be five years from now, ten years from now, one year from now. This is where I'm going to be. And we have a plan for our life. But when you do it your way and not God's way, you will never get to your destination. Jonah never arrived in Tarshish. He never got to where he was going to go. You know, I have a pretty bad case of FOMO, fear of missing out. And both the little things and the big things. And uh, the, in the little things, when I'm at a restaurant, when I order something at a, at a new restaurant, I'm afraid that there's going to be something better on the menu that I didn't order. And I get timid. I don't, oh, should I get this? And that's the great thing about being married. If there's two things, you say, you get that and I'll get this and we'll just share, right? And sometimes in the larger scheme of things, sometimes I wonder if there's something else I could be doing with my life that has a greater impact. Is there something better? Am I headed in the right trajectory? Am I going to get to my destination? If there is, I want to reach that destination. So if there's a better way, I need to know about it. I want to fulfill my life's potential by telling as many people about Jesus as I possibly can. And there's moments in your life where it's going to require you to patiently wait on God and his timing. To wait on God and his will for your life. Or... You can choose to seize those moments on your own and ignore God's voice, ignore his way, and do it your own way. But you will never get to your destination if you do it that way. Which direction are you headed? Are you seeking God first and making him a priority in your life? Or are you busy building your own kingdom? His word says, seek first the kingdom and I'll get you to your destination. That was the Blake version. Seek first the kingdom and the rest will be added unto you. But Jesus is saying, if you seek me first, if you trust me, if you trust that my way is the best way, I will get you to your destination. I will get you where you need to go. Are you in the boat to Tarshish or are you on the road to Nineveh? Here's the last thing. And I'm going to invite Mary to come up. When you run from God, running from God always leads down you never arrive at your destination and number three you pay the fare you pay the price it says in jonah chapter one so he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with him to tarshish away from the presence of the lord jonah paid the fare but never got refunded because he didn't get to where he was supposed to go he never arrived at his destination but he still paid the price And when you ignore God and you run from his presence, you will pay the price and still never get to where you want to go. When you seek God's presence and live in obedience, God pays your fare and he gets you to your destination.
He pays the price for you. He says, I'll take care of it. I'll cover the bill. Many of us have experienced what it means to pay the price for our mistakes. We've, we're forgiven, but some of us still carry the scars. We still battle with guilt and shame and memories. We still carry those scars. But when you stop running and you turn to Jesus, he takes the weight from you and he pays your fare. He pays the price. And he, he relieves you of the guilt. He relieves you of the shame. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29 says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, are you struggling? Are you running? Are you weighed down by guilt and shame? Maybe addiction and heaviness, depression. Are you turning to God for the solutions? Or are you doing it your own way? Are you running away from the presence of God? Jesus invites you to come. Let me pay your fare. Let me take, let me take that weight off of you. And let me give you my yoke, which is easy story of Jonah is a giant mirror that, that we peer into. And this morning I want to ask, I want all of us to ask ourselves, have, have I ignored the voice of God or disobeyed him? Am I doing it right now? The Bible is filled with things that God commands us to do. He tells every single one of us, he says, arise, go into your community and forgive as you have been forgiven. Arise, go into your community and tell others who don't deserve it about the mercy of God and the goodness of God. Arise, go into your community and take care of the poor and the orphans and the widows. Go into your community and think of others first by dying to your selfish desires. He says, husbands, arise, go to your wives and don't wait for your wife to show you the respect you think you deserve. But love her unconditionally as Jesus loved the church. That's in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, wives, arise. Go to your husbands and show him the honor and respect. Even through the most difficult seasons. Children, show your parents honor. He says, arise, employees. Go to your workplace and do your work as unto the Lord. And when we disobey what God is asking us to do. We are on the run. We are on the run headed for Tarshish. So this morning, ask yourself, am I on the run in any sense? This morning, I want to pray over you and ask for the Lord to, maybe there's some of you here who need a fresh start. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I want to pray over you. Father, I thank you that your word is true and that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword where we feel the pain and the conviction of our sin, but at the same time we sense the hope and the joy that you offer, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. I pray for the people who are in this place, who are feeling that gentle conviction of the Holy Spirit even this morning and saying, I need 
my first invitation is for maybe those of you in the room who have never said yes to Jesus, never invited him into your life before. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in a moment if you want to make a decision to invite Jesus into your life. And I want you to know before we do that, that our church doesn't believe that your journey ends here, that when you raise your hand, you get a golden ticket. Congratulations, you're going to heaven. The Bible says that grace is a free gift. And when you receive the grace of Jesus over your life, he cleanses you from a lifetime of sin, both in the past and in the future. You are free. But it also says, the Bible says we must walk out our faith. And at our church, we believe and being submitted to a process of discipleship, not to earn grace, not to to earn our salvation through works. That's not it at all. But to live out this life that God has saved us into. So this morning, if there is anybody in this room who says, I have been running, I have been ignoring what God is asking me to do. And this morning, I want to turn to Jesus and give him my life. If that's you, would you raise your hand right now with every head bowed, every eyes closed. Just raise your hand high so I can see it. I see your hand. Anybody else? Praise God. But everybody repeat this prayer after me. Jesus, thank you for the price you paid on the cross. I know that I need forgiveness. I know that I've messed up. But I receive the work that you did for me. And I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit to empower me to live the life that you called me to live. Thank you for your grace. more thing. If there's anybody in this room, keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. If there's anybody in this room who says, I just need a new start. I, I, there are things in my life that I just, I feel like have been blocking me from the presence of God. I've been running from the face of Yahweh. I've been ignoring something in my life that God has been prodding. He's been asking me to, to consider this and I've been running and this morning I'm done running. If that's you, if there's something in the way, I just want to pray for breakthrough. I want to pray for freedom in your life. Just raise your hand right now if that's you. If you need breakthrough, if you need freedom in your life. Praise God. Father, I pray for every person whose hand was raised. Lord, that you would help them in their commitment to be steadfast. Lord, to uh, to extend forgiveness to themselves that you have forgiven them. And I pray, Lord, that they would not be bound by shame, not be bound by guilt. God, that, that the things that are in the way, that we, we break those strongholds in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would identify those things in every person's mind, that you would help us to, to pray specifically for those things that we know we need to surrender and that we would come to you daily and lay those things at your feet. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand with me, church. If you raise your hand to receive Jesus for the first time, I want to encourage you to come to Grow Class next Sunday uh, and to stay engaged, stay plugged into church, uh, dive into community with people that love Jesus because that is how you grow closer to Jesus in your faith. God bless you, church. I'm so excited to continue this with you next week. Love you. Bless you. See you later.